You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 125 by Rudolf Steiner, 14 lectures entitled Paths and Goals of the Spiritual Human Being, Life Questions in the Light of Spiritual Science, translated by Christian von Arnhem. This is Lecture 2, given in Hamburg on the 26th of May, 1910. We will engage today not in anthroposophical, but in purely philosophical reflections. They can, however, be fostered in an anthroposophical group, because although the subject matter of spiritual science is the result of experiences in the suprasensory world, turning these experiences into a comprehensive systematic conception of the world requires sharp and indeed also trained thinking, which deals conscientiously with every single point. And if it is the case that untrained thinking can cause a lot of damage in external science, it is the case specifically in the anthroposophical movement that, more so than through inaccurate observation, even greater damage is caused, because an interest in suprasensory things does not go hand in hand with an equally strong interest in logical thinking. And such purely logical thinking can be trained particularly well through a reflection on the thinking of Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. Such a reflection will also be able to throw a certain light on our present time. People talk from time to time about going back to Hegel, but we cannot say that our time has the intellectual prerequisites which would advance an understanding of Hegel. The whole of Hegel's thinking grew out of a time in which there was the most intense interest in deriving the foundations of all knowledge and existence from perspectives of the highest order. And it is no coincidence but a deep necessity that Hegel lived in a time in which these foundations of the highest order were sought in the greatest variety of fields. Hegel was born in Stuttgart on 27 August 1770. He became a student at the Tuminger Stift, 1788-1793, that institution which played such an important role in the development of German intellectual life at the time. His fellow pupils included Schelling, who towered over him and outshone him for such a long time, and the deep-natured Hölderlin, who was soon to descend into madness, even if not because of his deep nature. They formed what might be described as a trefoil, the deep-natured Hölderlin seeking in mystical light and shade, Schelling with his energetic, sharp thinking and brimming-over imagination, and the somewhat ponderous Hegel extracting his thoughts onerously from out of his soul. Schelling and Hegel subsequently worked together again at Jena University, which at the time was a hothouse of intellectual life. Schelling thrilled his listeners with a mighty sweep with which he dealt with intellectual problems. He even thrilled those 
who did not by inclination seek to penetrate the questions of existence. Schelling pointed to something which goes beyond all thinking in human existence, to the, as he said, intellectual intuition, which he thought of as a primal ability to look into the substrates of existence. Hegel was a fellow lecturer of his from 1801 to 1806. Even at this time, still his thinking was ponderous because he wanted to make each thought never comprised more than it was intended to mean. And it is this slow, penetrating ponderousness of his thinking which makes Hegel not at all easy to understand to begin with. Then came the sad time of 1806. During this time Hegel undertook, as he himself put it, the actual great intellectual journeys of discovery. As the cannons thundered at Jena, he concluded the first of the works to emerge from a detailed, incredibly profound collection regarding the spirit, the title Phenomenology of Spirit. This is a work which is unique in the whole of world literature. Hegel wanted particularly to clarify for himself the experiences which the soul can have when it ascends from subordinate perspectives, as it were, to the highest, to what Hegel calls the constitution of the spirit in itself. To begin with, we live in the most dulled possible connection with the external world, in which every this or that, every tree and every house, is something with which we live together. Every opinion is something in which we live. Only when we start to reflect on this and that does perception arise. From perception we then get through the thinking to an initial sense of self, an obscure inkling of the self. Only then do we get to the first flashes of a real consciousness. But here the I, capital, is still spellbound within its surroundings. It works its way out of this enchantment through the content which it is meant to have solely out of itself in that it leaves more and more of what is connected with the external world. In this way, self-consciousness comes about, and thus the interpenetration, the interweaving of self-consciousness with the spirit. It becomes spirit itself, grasping itself within itself. Becoming spirit, growing conscious within itself. And when human beings then look back, they perceive what grasps itself as spirit within itself. They perceive the idea which they have extracted, as it were, from its enchantment in the external world. They perceive that they were previously stuck in the contradiction between subject and object, but that now in overcoming subject and object in the idea which grasps itself, which is not just subject and not just object, they grasp what Hegel calls the absolute idea. Thus, through an incredible effort of thinking, Hegel had come to establish so-called absolute idealism. Hegel's fortunes varied considerably after his Jena lectureship. He worked for a time as a political journalist in Bamberg, 1807-8, then he became headmaster of and taught at a school in Nuremberg, 1808 to 1816. 
and thus through many different external experiences became the realistically thinking spirit which we encounter subsequently. After Nuremberg, he briefly obtained a post at the University of Heidelberg, where he published his title Encyclopedia of the Philosophical Sciences in 1817. Hegel might well have said about the reception of this work, the words which legend has it, he expressed shortly before his death, quote, Of all my pupils, there has only been one who understood me, and he misunderstood me, close quote. It is indeed a very peculiar feeling to have immersed something so incredibly profound into the stream of the world, and at the same time to see how almost all the conditions for acceptance of such profundity are missing. We have to adopt Hegel's perspective to draw something like a skeleton of what this title Encyclopedia was intended to be. But I would ask you when I speak now from the perspective of Hegel not to start viewing me as an Hegelian. For Hegel, it was a matter of continuing to develop the perspective he had developed in the title Phenomenology of Spirit, which he had obtained through placing himself on the standpoint of the idea beyond subject and object. And now, to elaborate this perspective, if I may put it like that, in order from that perspective to survey human thinking and activity in all its scope. According to Hegel, the concepts of subject and object, of cognition and opinion and such like, could not be contained in the absolute idea. The idea is beyond all such contrasts. Hegel wants to understand the idea as if it were being presented in all its purity, this idea which, although it is at work in subject and object, goes beyond both. This idea may well be found in human beings, in the external world, in spirit and nature, but it goes beyond both. It lies beyond spirit and nature. In Hegel's view, the idea must therefore not be understood as something abstract to begin with, like an abstract point, for example. On the contrary, it is something replete in itself, which out of itself, as the idea, allows a rich content to grow out of itself, just like the plant seed implicitly contains the whole of the plant with all its individual parts. Thus, according to Hegel, the idea allows a content to grow out of itself which is independent of spirit and nature, which, when it is applied, must be applied to both. Before, then, considering the meaning of spirit and nature, we obtain a perspective higher than both, and then see in nature a manifestation of the idea, and equally see the idea coming to expression in the spirit. We thus have to obtain a perspective from which the idea is developed in such a way as if the human being were not present at all. Human beings then surrender to the very own process of the world of ideas developing in itself and out of itself. This perspective produces what, in the meaning of Hegel, can be called the science of logic. Here we are not dealing with a subject and object, as in Aristotelian logic, but with the independent movement of the idea located above subject and object.
any thinking which only wishes to devote itself to the things of the external world finds it difficult to gain entry to the strictly closed ranks of the Hegelian concepts. We feel as if violence is being done to us, as if we are being shoehorned into a system of ideas which has nothing whatsoever in common with the normal, everyday rationale of reason. The idea is meant to think, not I. That is the feeling we have. That is why people mostly also do not engage with Hegel's world of ideas. But if we do so, nevertheless, well, we might correct Hegel here or there, that is very easy, particularly with Hegel, but that is not really the point. The point is that people undergo enormous self-discipline in their thinking through the study of Hegel, because there is nothing like Hegelian logic to learn where a system of human concepts, indeed a concept as such, can occur. A concept can only be recognized with all its implications if it can be thought of only in a certain location within a whole web of concepts. In order to clarify that for himself, Hegel starts with the emptiest concept, the concept of being, which is normally just placed without people generally being aware where they have placed it. Now, this concept is meant to be completely empty in Hegel. So as we enter Hegel's logic, we have right at the start to ignore all later content which this concept has obtained. That is, we have to be very disciplined in our thinking. Thus the concept of being is not established by human beings, but it is what faces human beings when all other concepts have been excluded from it. Now Hegel wants to find the method for developing concepts. In other words, one concept has to develop from another. Thus the concept of being, if we look at it in the right way, must immediately elevate itself above itself. As soon as we apply the abstract concept of existence to a thing, that abstract concept is no longer pure. It is then already related to a this or that. In this way we learn to understand that being is nothingness, but please note, only within the concept. Through such a self-referential dialectic, we have thus derived the concept of nothingness from the concept of being. Once we have created discipline in our thinking in this way, we have educated ourselves at this point of Hegelian logic, already in a way of thinking which in Hegel's further discussion of being and nothingness is only ever applied in the way as has just been explained. Being and nothingness now produce a third thing, becoming. But in order to grasp becoming, it has to be brought to rest. Thus, in fourth place, the concept of existence emerges from the concept of becoming. This is the only way that existence can be used in Hegelian logic, as being which has inverted itself into nothingness, which, together with that, has produced becoming, which, brought to rest, produces existence. And Hegel continues using this method. He obtains the concepts of one and many, quantity and quality, measure and so on. 
Thus we have an organism of the idea in the first place of Hegel's title Encyclopedia. Only once we have grasped all the preceding things can we reach the concept of purpose, which stands at the end of Hegelian logic. Such absolute logic does indeed achieve an immense self-discipline, which should be held up to our time at least as an ideal. It teaches us to express a concept only if we have its content completely in our consciousness. We must not, then, have anything in our concepts other than what at some point in our lives we have clarified for ourselves as the development of the concept. Subsequent concepts which appear in Hegelian logic are subject and object, knowledge, essence, causality, which are now, however, clear in our consciousness. Once Hegel had established the complete system of concepts in this way, he was able to show how concepts reveal themselves in what we might call their enchantment. The concept cannot only be in the subject because then any talk about nature would be meaningless. On the contrary, our concepts underlie natural phenomena, have made them. Thus it is irrelevant with regard to the concept whether it appears internally or externally. Externally it is hidden from us. Nature is the concept or idea in its otherness, as Hegel says. Anyone who says anything different about nature goes beyond what they know for certain. The result is a kind of natural philosophy, a natural science which seeks the development of the idea externally after it has first been sought in itself in its purer existence, in logic. To begin with, the idea comes to expression in subordinate phenomena, where the concept is most hidden, so that we might be tempted to refer to natural phenomena devoid of the idea. That is what happens in mechanics. But even within mechanical phenomena, Hegel's disciplined thinking distinguishes between two things. He distinguishes ordinary mechanics, such as underlies phenomena like thrust, force, and matter, relative mechanics, as he calls it, from absolute mechanics. In other words, he considers it inadmissible to apply the ordinary concepts of relative mechanics to the heavenly bodies. Only when we develop the concept of absolute mechanics do we find the idea which lies in celestial mechanics. There is, however, no trace of that distinction in today's science. Hence Hegel's polemic against Newton, who particularly was most intent on applying the concepts of relative mechanics without further thought to the concepts of absolute mechanics. Starting from the concept of absolute mechanics, Hegel proceeds to the concept of the real organism. He identifies the three elements of the organism as Quote, first, the geological organism. In Hegel's sense, the complete structure of the earth must not be understood as the laws of a small area being extended to the whole earth, as is done by geology today. Hegel sees what we might call a rigidified organism in every mountain range, in every geological form. Second, the plant organism, in which the concept reveals itself in equal value with the idea 
in uniformity with the idea. Third, the animal organism, which in a certain sense already presents the existence of the idea in the external world. Close quote, readers aside, this is an indented section. I am not sure it might be a typographical error in the publishing. That might have just been Steiner and not a quotation. End of readers aside. What the idea appears to be in earth existence, the enchanted idea, as it were, has thereby exhausted itself. Human beings now emerge from these enchanted ideas. Initially, they have to be understood through their natural characteristics. That is the subject matter of anthropology. In their perception, human beings find themselves in a dulled state in external existence. But when they rise to consciousness and from there to self-consciousness, they detach themselves, in a sense, from external existence. This is where anthropology is followed by the, quote, phenomenology of spirit, close quote. Within this phenomenology, human beings finally grasp themselves as spirit. They recognize themselves as subjective spirit in that initially they struggle free from the enchantment of nature. Gradually the idea itself appears to them once again, what it was in the first, very first, concept of existence now comes to the fore. Once human beings have, in this way, recognized the idea in itself, in logic, and outside itself, in nature, they now understand it where it is in and of itself. Now, this initially subjective spirit turns itself into objective spirit. The idea highlights what it is as such in what are the spiritual institutions, marriage, family, law, morals. All of that is combined in the state. What emerges in the state is objective spirit as realization of the idea, what can be found in the interaction between states. That is world history. Thus, world history is the existence of the idea after its passage through the subjective spirit. And the question arises, can we close the circle at the end like a snake biting its tail? That is, can we get back to the absolute idea, to a realization of the idea which overcomes the subjective and objective again? The absolute idea can in its absolute reality, initially appears something preparatory, so that it is not enchanted, hidden as in nature, but such that it shines through appearances. That is the case in art. Beyond world history, Hegel thus creates the first realization of the absolute idea in art. But here it still has something of an objective, of an external nuance but it can also act in such a way that it no longer has a nuance of the external, but a nuance of the internal. That is the case in religion. So it is the realization of the absolute idea on the second level. But the idea can also overcome the nuance of externality, which it still has in art, and the nuance of internality, which it still has in religion. It does so in understanding itself, at the point where it catches hold of itself in philosophy, 
in an Hegelian sense. And thus the circle is closed. In the whole field of history there is nothing which is as self-contained as the Hegelian system. Later on he elaborates individual parts, such as the philosophy of right, 1821, a field in which a strictly disciplined thinking is particularly beneficial. Now Hegel says something remarkable in the preface to the title Elements of the Philosophy of Right. When reason takes hold of the idea, everything must be understood because we see the idea. That is the action of reason in things. Everything real is therefore rational in an Hegelian sense. These words can, of course, be immediately refuted with the arbitrariness of ordinary reasoning if we fail to take account of the context of Hegel's thinking. If we, therefore, place Hegel's philosophy in outline before our souls in this way, we have recognized immensely disciplined thinking as the basic tenor of his philosophy. Hegel then taught this philosophy from 1818 to 1831 in Berlin, where he died on the 14th of November, 1831, the same date that Leibniz died, who had set out exactly the opposite philosophy. Hegel's philosophy is centered on the idea which remains holy with itself. In Leibniz, the idea is scattered in the immense number of monads, but just a single monad which contains the pre-established harmony would, if it developed, need to take the path of the Hegelian absolute idea. Thus Hegel's system lies in the development of a single monad. Hegel set up the strictest monistic, Leibniz the strictest monadological system. For as long as we remain in Hegel's columns of thought, we remain in a strictly closed loop of the spirit. How do we get beyond that if we measure Hegel's system against monadology? That is indeed what happened to one thinker, that for him Leibniz's monadology broke open Hegel's monism. That is what happened to Schelling. Having been silent since 1814, he was appointed to Berlin in 1841, ten years after Hegel's death. He tried to go beyond Hegel, with whom he had worked in the past, and from 1802 to 1803 had published the title Kritische Journal der Philosophie. They were unusual lectures, which he now gave in Berlin. There is only one way to get beyond Hegel. It is only possible by drilling a hole from outside at the point where, in Hegel, the I, capital, grasps itself in the phenomenology of spirit. We also remain stuck in Leibniz's monads if we do not drill a hole there in the same place. If we start at that point, we get beyond the I, capital, which only grasps itself, then we get to super-sensory experiences which really go beyond what Hegel comprehends in his system. And that is indeed what Schelling does. He started to teach theosophy, real theosophy, even if in an abstract form. And he met with the same success which a person would have today who wanted to teach theosophy at a university. Schelling teaches a triplicity of the foundation of the world, a threefold potency. First, the capacity to be, 
second, pure being, third, the combination. Thus he set out then what today we seek in the threefold logos. Then Schelling sought to understand the secrets of the ancient mysteries in his title Philosophy of Mythology. He sought to teach what we investigate today, helped by super-sensory experiences which have become possible since then. For example, in what my book titled Christianity as Mystical Fact says about the mysteries of antiquity. Then Schelling strove for an appreciation of the Christian mysteries in his title Philosophy of Revelation, which attempts to throw a light on Christianity from a theosophical perspective. Schelling was only able to give these lectures because he had previously stood at the lectern with different views. Now the rage against him was all the greater. All the textbooks and other histories of philosophy today present this last, quote, theosophical period, close quote, with great horror, a period in which he went totally mad, having previously established the insanity of his, in quotes, intellectual views, as they put it. But with this transition from Hegel to Schelling, an age simultaneously arose which lived completely under the spell of natural science. And since then we are experiencing a strange spectacle through the observation of which we will be able to see why theosophy, spiritual science, has to be received today in particular in the way it is received. There is no one who admires the results arising from facts more than I do, and yet the following has to be said. The discovery of plant and animal cells by Schwann and Schleiden in the 1830s was a great attainment, but petty opinions followed on from it. The theory of energy and matter arrived, which considered anything spiritual to be merely the froth on physical processes. The worst product of such a way of thinking was the strict framework within which Büchner framed theoretical materialism in his book titled Kraft und Stoff. Büchner's audacious courage is something to be admired, of course. The other researchers were simply not brave enough to think their thoughts through to the end. But more subtle minds also went different ways from Hegel and Schelling under the constraints of natural science, such as Hermann Helmholtz, who did great things in the fields of psychophysics, the physiology of the senses, physiological optics, and the theory of sound. His discoveries led him to reject Hegel through the way that experiments were conducted and through the suggestive power of the experiments, not through his thinking. So that he said, when I open Hegel and read a few pages of his natural philosophy, that is pure nonsense. And there was another subtle and cognitively trained spirit whose thinking was misunderstood, Julius Robert Meyer, who discovered the law of the conservation of energy. His law did indeed have great physical importance, and this was acknowledged. But Meyer's thinking about the mechanical equivalent of heat in his work titled Die Organische Bewegung in ihrem Zusammenhang mit dem Stoffwechsel, 1845, was never understood. People much preferred to read Helmholtz. He was much easier to understand. Thus people preferred to read his work, titled Wechselwirkungen der Naturkräfte, 
1854, in which he proved the correctness of Meyer's law on the basis of the impossibility of perpetual motion. Then the achievements of Darwinism came along, and such a bold spirit as Haeckel, who, however, was averse to any intellectual culture and could therefore see, not see anything in Hegelian philosophy other than a tangle of concepts. This courageous spirit was now called upon to develop the scientific facts in the sense of external material historical development. Thus he was the founder of the materialistic Darwinism of the 1860s and 1870s. No philosophical direction of thought rose up against that. The world was no longer capable of being gripped by philosophy. There was nothing of a reciprocal relationship between philosophy and science. Thus a thinker as important as Edward von Hartmann, who in his title Philosophie des Unbewussten, 1869, called materialistic Darwinism, before the court, we might say, of a spiritual philosophy, was abused as a dilettante who has no idea about science. There were many publications against him, including a brilliant anonymous one, titled Das Unbewusste vom Standpunkt der Philosophie und Dezenden Ziri. My apologies. 1872, Haeckel said about this publication that it was so excellent and showed up the errors of the philosophy of Edward von Hartmann so thoroughly that he himself, Haeckel, could have written it. And Oskar Schmidt, Darwin's biographer, very much regretted that the esteemed colleague wished to remain anonymous. Then a new edition of this work appeared, and Edward von Hartmann revealed himself as the author. Thus philosophy in the most unsubtle way provided the evidence that it is very well able to understand science, even if trained thinking leads to quite different conclusions from those of materialism. It is indeed the case that this struggle is not just word against word, but cultural forces are opposing one another. Subtle minds always retained their understanding of both things, philosophy and science but they could only ever be heard in the smallest circles because of the dominant suggestive power of science. Thus the extraordinarily subtle history of philosophy by Vincenz Clauer, titled the Hauptproblema der Philosophie, which set out great perspectives, could only be understood in the smallest of groups. Indeed, not even what the narrow Herbartian philosophy was able to produce against outer materialism had any effect. So it happened that a strictly logical mind, even if trained in scholasticism, which wanted to build a bridge to scientific method within itself, could not even do that within itself. This is what happened to Franz Brentano, who wanted to combine scientific method with strictly logical thinking in his title Psychologie vom empirischen Standpunkt the first volume of which appeared in 1874. But his disciplined thinking was not able to make any headway. He himself was still too much subject to the constraints of scientific materialism. He could not deal with himself, and so the second volume, which had been announced for the autumn, failed to appear. And today Brentano lives as an old gentleman in Florence, and the second volume has still not appeared.
I myself witnessed the terrible struggles which this division could cause in the individual soul. I saw how the methodological aspect in training the thinking directly lost its power through the suggestive power of science. It happened during a formal meeting of the Vienna Academy in the 1880s at which I was present when Ernst Mach gave a lecture about economy in looking at natural phenomena. He indeed failed to find a way to grasp natural phenomena within his method. With each sentence it was painfully clear how all methodology of thought disappeared, how everything shrunk to the principle of the least use of energy in understanding nature. In this way thinking was reduced from the ruling position it held in Hegel to the least conceivable economic importance. Thus, Hegel remained what we might call under an enchantment, and even a Kuno Fischer was not able to release him from his spell. It turned out to be true what Rosenkranz said in the introduction to his Hegel biography. We philosophers in the second half of the nineteenth century are, at best, the gravediggers of the philosophers of the first half of the nineteenth century. And with that he meant biographers. A new revival in the methodology of thinking then appeared to be provided by the works, going back to Kant, of Otto Liebmann, Zeller, and so on. Liebmann wrote one of the most sharp-witted treatises which have ever been written in the field of epistemology. He used every means to attempt to establish a transcendental epistemology, but finally nevertheless ended up with a kind of epistemology which we might crudely describe as comparable to a dog chasing his tail. He did not get beyond the starting point of his epistemology. And that is how we reached our present state. Clausius, importantly, developed the theory of heat which influenced the physiology of the senses, which in turn influenced epistemology. Once again, then, a spell was cast on philosophy by science. Thus those who spoke on the basis of the former trained thinking were silenced. It is true that in the 1880s a researcher, starting from Kant, really sought to develop epistemology further, but he was not heard. Thus circumstances forced him to abandon that area completely and move over to aesthetics. It was not until 1906 that he, it was Johannes Volkelt, published a small epistemological work titled Die Quellen der Gewissheit unserer Erkenntnis, The Sources of the Certainty of Our Knowledge. The conditions for a true epistemology existed as little as for a true understanding of Hegel. Our time is much more satisfied by something like Spencer's Encyclopedia, which goes a tiny bit and very superficially beyond science. And when indeed the concept of the smallest economic measure, as set out by Mach, returned from the New World in the pragmatism of A. William James, it was enthusiastically received as something new. Certainly the strict columns of Hegel's absolute logic and the totally unphilosophical reasoning of pragmatism make rather curious bedfellows. But what is good cannot be suppressed completely, only for a time. Healthy thinking stirred, on the basis of the power arising from a people, we might say, where a misunderstood Kantianism was not able to coat the thinking like mildew. 
thus the Russian philosopher Soloviev, did indeed bring new, important methodological approaches, and that he was based in the strength of a young people, which, if you want to put it like that, had not even produced a proper culture, but not in an old one like Franz Brentano. The Frenchman Boutros introduced a new usable concept into historical development. Such endeavors continue to be ignored, but the truth continues to smolder under the ashes. It can become overgrown with preconceptions and impotence, but it nevertheless continues working as self-discipline in the thinking. And those in particular who believe that they have to represent spiritual science must hope that such self-discipline of the thinking will smooth the path for spiritual science. They must find the way to the strictest Hegelian logic, because that is the only way to provide a firm foundation in the thinking for what they have to bring down in often loose forms from higher spiritual worlds. Thus, if we may put it like this, there is nothing in the supersensory field which would have to be rejected by a strictly trained thinking. Sharper, self-disciplined thinking will find the transition, the bridge which leads from the last highest product of the physical plane, the thinking, to the supersensory. The end of Lecture 2